Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come now to the scripture. We believe it to be the word of God. Uh, you say that it is, it's confirmed itself, itself many times over in every aspect of our lives. So we pray now you would grant us grace to hear, to listen, to believe, to walk in these things about which we hear, about which we read this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Colossians, please, in chapter 1. Colossians in chapter 1. I want to read verses 3 through 8. Colossians in chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth. The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. And understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. Our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Remember last week we we took up this letter, call it book, but letter of the Apostle Paul to this church in an ancient city called Colossae. We do it this way. I could, as you know, take particular topics each week, topics of interest, biblical topics, whether they be marriage or parenting or hope or faith or or, or love or forgiveness or um, um, sexuality or suffering. I could take topic by topic and and work through the scripture that way. Uh, It seems best, as I've argued before, seems best, at least to me and our elders, that we take up long passages of Scripture, books of the Bible at a time, and and listen so that we hear what God is saying, so that He sets the agenda. So, uh, as I mentioned last Sunday in in my own praying, after I finished uh, Habakkuk, I uh, came here, and it seems right uh, to be here, so I trust God will help us. Um, This letter, particular one, written, as it says, by Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, there in verse 1, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Timothy and Paul are together. Paul's uh, authoring this particular letter to this church. It's an interesting church in the sense that Paul himself, this great apostle, didn't found this church. Uh, as we mentioned last Sunday, it was most likely founded uh, while Paul was in Ephesus and uh, Colossae being about 100 miles away from that, from there. But we, we learned in the book of Acts chapter 19 that when Paul was in Ephesus that all of Asia had heard the gospel. Uh, probably not every single person in Asia, not everybody showed up in Ephesus to hear it. But, but from that place it went out, no doubt Epaphras heard it and he took it there, this fellow servant, this faithful minister of the gospel who is, uh, m- m- may well be from Colossae itself, uh, a local and hearing the gospel comes back and he's the one who brings the gospel to this community, founds this church, if you will, in that, in that place. So Paul speaks of himself in verse 1 as an apostle, uh, not in the generic sense of apostle, meaning simply one who is sent out, but Paul numbers himself as the 12 numbered themselves as one who had been personally, particularly called by Jesus. You remember that Jesus chose his 12 
We call them the apostles. Um, and he called them personally while he was on earth. Come, he said, and follow me. There was one other that Jesus called in that same personal way. And it was this one whose name had been Saul, now changed to Paul. Because Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, the apostle, was spoken directly to by Jesus, you remember, on the road to Damascus. And Jesus then called him. And Paul refers to his own apostleship as having come as one untimely born or untimely called. He was at a different time than the others. He was sort of out of sync, but yet still called. And so he numbers himself, Paul does, with those apostles having that very authority, and thus this authority even under the Holy Spirit, to write that which is true, to write the very word of God. So he writes in this authoritative fashion, and so we listen to it. When Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica, he said to them, you have received this word, not as the words of men, but the word of God, which it is. And so we come to this letter to this church, trusting that it is God who is writing to us ultimately, that everything that God wanted written through the hand, the mind of Paul, is here for us. Thus, we can, must trust it, sit under it. Paul had a particular reason, it seems, for writing to this church. There were some difficulties. Remember, these letters of Paul are what we call, or what we called in the literature, occasional letters. Not that he simply wrote them occasionally, but that he wrote them because there was a particular occasion that struck his interest. And that will come in chapter 2, ultimately, to the particular occasion, what was really going on in this church. And, and there seemed like in other churches in that time some false teaching. It's difficult, and we'll get there again in chapter 2. It's difficult to, to, to nail it exactly what was going on. But it seems that what was happening is that this teaching was drawing people away from trusting in Christ alone. Whether it was some early form of what's called Gnosticism, which means that there's some sort of special knowledge just for the special few who are initiated into this that puts them in kind of, some kind of spiritual elite that some were saying, no, you need this wisdom uh, in addition to what Epaphras told you about Jesus. You need more than this gospel, whether it was this early form of Gnosticism, whether it was some kind of a, asceticism as well, that is, some kind of self-sacrifice that would lead to some personal piety that was greater, at least externally, uh, as it seemed then uh, you could get through this gospel that Epaphras had brought concerning Jesus marking out special days or eating certain kinds of food or not, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, could have been a retreat into ancient Judaism in some sorts of ways, some kind of spiritualism, sort of um, um, being paying special attention to angels and other spiritual beings, as opposed to Christ. So Paul's intention as he comes is to correct that. And the antidote that he gives them, as we again noticed last Sunday in our, our quick overview of Colossians, the antidote that he gives them is to tell them about Jesus, oddly enough. He speaks to them of Christ. Notice how he puts this message of Christ, verse 15. He speaks of Christ saying he's the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, whether visible or, uh, or, or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And all of that, for Paul to get to this expression, that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, 
Jesus is first. He defines all of history and directs it. He's first in history. He's first in the church. He's to be first in our lives. He's to be preeminent. All of history centers around him. We read in that profession of faith this morning out of Ephesians 1 that all things will be summed up in Christ. He's the center of all of history. Everything revolves around him. The one profession that will be made by every human being is the acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. Everything will be summed up in him. In all of history, in the church, and thus even in our own lives. And so Paul's saying, don't follow after anything. Why would you follow after any other gospel, any other news, any other message, any other person, other than this one who's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator of all that is, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, this very one who is preeminent in all of history. Why would you follow any other? So that is the direction where Paul uh, takes us. We noticed that in what I read that Paul is praying, verse 3, he says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. So Paul's announcing that he prays for them. And what I want to do this day, if God will help me, is to take the first part of this prayer. There's really two parts of it uh, as he describes how he prays and what he prays for them. What I read is really Paul's thanksgiving. He gives thanks to God. And then beginning in verse 9 through 14 is the second part of this praying where he has particular requests. This first part he's giving thanks to God. This second part he has particular requests for them. What I want to do today is to ask the question, really, what does it mean for them? Thus, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us that Paul gives thanks to God for their faith and their love. What does it, what's it mean? Now, I ask that question, it's sort of odd, I suppose, maybe even irreverent to analyze someone's praying. But it's in the Bible. Paul tells us about it. And we learn from reading the letters of Paul, most especially, that his prayers very often tip his hand to what he's going to say. And, and I don't think he does that and let me put it this way. I think he does that intentionally because prayer and what he's going to say are so related and tied together. Because you see, what Paul wants to see happen, ultimately he writes about. And what he writes about, he prays about. And the reason he prays about it is he realizes that unless he does, unless God is in this, that what he writes about and what he want, desires to see done, the very will of God, won't happen. There's a relationship between doing and praying, a relationship that this apostle knows well. The praying is to precede doing. Dependence upon God, the expression of which is our praying. The desire that God's will be done, the expression of which is through our praying, is to precede what we do. For instance, we noticed last Sunday, because we kind of peeked at the second part of this prayer in verses 9 through 12, that Paul specifically was going to pray that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so what does he do? 
he lays out for them in the verses to come the very will of God, which is Christ. And to know Christ. And then he is also going to pray that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him, bearing fruits in every good work. So then what does he do? By the time we get to chapter 3, he says, here's how to walk with Christ. Concentrate on that which is in heaven, not upon the earth. And then, tear away, put off all that is earthly, and put on all that is heavenly. Take off all that which is sinful, put on all that which is of Christ. And so he prays, and then he talks with the hope that they get it. And he trusts that God is in that. So my question, before we get to all those specifics, is why does he thank God for them? Uh, Notice the flow uh, here. Uh, He thanks God, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And he thanks God because he's heard of something about them. He's heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints. So he's saying, I'm going to give God thanks Because of these things in you. I'm going to thank God that you're people of faith in Christ. And I'm going to thank God that you're people who love all the saints. And then notice, this faith and love has its source in the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Notice how it's put. Verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, because... Some of your versions may have four... Because is better. Because <laughs> that's what mine has. Uh, because, that is, here's the reason why you're able to have faith and persevere in faith. And so able, you're able to love and persevere in loving all these other believers. It's because you have this hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, you learned about what's laid up for you in heaven. Thus, we're able to have this hope. Of this you heard before in the word of truth. It's this word of truth that told you about what's laid up for you in heaven. Thus giving you hope. Thus fueling your faith and love. It's truth. It isn't error. It's truth. It isn't a guess. It's truth. It's the gospel. So there's this gospel. Good news. And it's come to you. And indeed... In the whole world, it's bearing fruit and growing. That is, this gospel that you got from Epaphras is the same gospel that's been going all over the world. And that same gospel that you got and that same gospel that's going all over the world is having the same impact both places. It's generating this hope, which is generating faith and love. As it also does among you since the day you heard and understood, it is the grace of God in truth and you learned it from Epaphras, who's a, who's a faithful, faithful servant. So Paul's saying, here's the deal. I'm giving thanks to God, not to you, not to me. I'm giving thanks to God because you have this faith in Christ, this love for all the saints. Those are fueled by the fact that you have hope. And you have hope because you understand what's laid up for you in heaven. And you understand what's laid up for you in heaven because of this word of truth, the gospel, which came to you. Uh, and, and, and trust it. Because look around the world. When this gospel goes anywhere, the same thing happens there as happens as is happening with you. And 
This is the gospel of truth, God's grace, and it came from Epaphras, and he's faithful. He knows what he's doing. So in a sense, Paul is laying this out in a way of saying, trust. Trust Christ. Because it's of him that Epaphras spoke. And that's the gospel. And that told you what was laid up in heaven. And you can trust that. That gives you hope. That fuels your faith and love. Thus, thank God. Epaphras, he says. This faithful servant. Trust him. He brought you truth. This truth that is reliable, he says. So Paul, in essence, is saying, what you heard from him about Jesus, believe. He is indeed the one of whom the prophets spoke. He is the one who was really born of a virgin, just like Epaphras would have told you. He is the one, regardless of what, a young pastor in our community wrote in yesterday's paper. He is the one who walked on water. He is the one who turned water into wine. Those, by the way, are two of the seven signs in John's Gospel that John uses to say that this proves, this shows that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Read yesterday's faith focus in our paper and weep. But... Paul would say, what you learn from Epaphras concerning Jesus is really true. He did walk on water. He did turn water into wine and thus his disciples saw his glory in that. He did heal the sick. He did give sight to the blind. He did make the lame walk. He did raise the dead. All of these true of Jesus. Not only that, he is indeed by virtue of who he is and this virgin birth, the very son of God, the very son of man, one person, two natures, God, man together. Thus, in living a perfect life, he represents us before God. When he went to the cross, as Epaphras would have told you, he did so and he died, taking the penalty for the sins of sinners. He rose again from the dead, living proof that the Father had accepted his sacrifice because since this man, Jesus, had no sin, death could not keep him. And thus he rose, but in his dying, thus he paid for the sins of sinners. He rises, ascends, rules and reigns, a day is coming. And he lives in glory, interceding, protecting all that's in glory, all that's laid up there, because it's all laid up there in him to be for those who believe. Paul saying, trust this one, Epaphras, this is gospel, meaning good news. In the days that, that Paul wrote, gospel had a very special meaning. Gospel meant that a great victory had been won, and now it's being announced. They didn't have, in those days, all the means of communication that we have. So if there was a, being, there, there was a battle being fought outside of your community, you may know that a battle is being fought. It may have been fought, being fought for years, but it's being fought. But you don't get daily reports. You don't get the war on TV in your living room, you wonder what's going to happen. And this is huge because if your side loses, then you become the property of those who win. And so it's, it's, it's epic. It's of great proportion. And so good news was what would come from a messenger to announce that the battle had been won. 
and one by your side. If there was a gospeler, that gospeler came as a, as a town crier saying, we won, we won, rejoice. Something great has happened. It now defines our history. We won this great battle. And Paul writes and says, Epaphras brought you that news, this truth, this gospel, this good news, that a victory has been won. Notice how Paul puts it in Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 13. He writes, And you who are dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgive us, forgiven us all our trespasses by, counsel, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And then he set, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He said something happened when Jesus died. It looked as though it was all over for him, but it wasn't. In his death, he defeated death. Because death is the result of sin. And thus, in that moment, he took all of our debts, all of our sin, all of that which was against us, and he nailed it to the cross. And it was gone. The victory had been won. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Epaphras came to you in the same way that the messenger announcing victory in war would come. Epaphras came and said, victory is here. The war has been fought. The battle has been won. It's been won by our side, by our champion, by one like us, this man Jesus. He came and he wins. So Paul is saying, trust in this, this gospel, this truth. Because you see, in this gospel, this truth is great Hope. Hope is an expectation of something that is, that is good to come. And this expectation of good that is to come, he said, is secure. It's, it's in heaven. Jesus spoke of the security in heaven, you remember, as he was speaking in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. He says there's this place that stuff can be kept, unlike stuff can be kept here. We keep stuff here, and it rusts. We keep stuff here, someone steals it. We keep stuff here, and it, and it breaks, it gets lost. He says there's a place where it will be secure, and that is in heaven. Peter puts it like this in First Peter in chapter 1. In verse 3 he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's saying it's secure there. It can't perish, it can't be defiled, and it can't fade. Inheritances are interesting things. People worry about them, especially in economic collapses. What you once thought was your inheritance may not be. If it's financial... It could be gone. There's an inheritance that's secure 
And it's that hope, you see. It's that hope we have in Christ Jesus that keeps it secure. Listen, as the scripture speaks of various, of of this inheritance in Romans 5. I'll just run through these. You don't need to look them up. Romans 5 puts it like this. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is kept safe in heaven. And we'll see it someday where everything will reflect him. He says, that's there. And that's waiting for you. It's secure there. Galatians 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's this hope. (laughs) There's this longing. There's this hope. It's this it's secure there. When you get there, you'll know righteousness. Not only having been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, but you'll know righteousness in the very core of your being. And you'll see it everywhere. Colossians 1.27 will come to this. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles the riches of his glory. And this glorious mystery... Which is, in, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. First Thessalonians, Paul puts it like this. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, this helmet, the hope of salvation. That's secure, he says. Paul writes to Titus and speaks of our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He lives, he's there. Thus, it's all laid up there. It's secure there. You needn't worry about that. As Christ lives, all that is in him for us lives in him there. It is safe and sound. And thus the apostle says, this, this hope fuels faith in Christ and the love that we have for all the saints. It's It causes that, it fuels that, it informs our faith and love. Faith in Christ Jesus. It's not faith in faith. It's not simply being a believing person. It's believing Christ and who he really is, the right knowledge about him, and then resting in him completely. With this sense that if this isn't true, we have No hope. That's what it really means to trust Christ. It means to rest in Him completely. Our whole eternal destiny. If it isn't Him, if He didn't come, if He didn't die, if He didn't rise again, if He isn't ruling and reigning, if He isn't coming back, if He isn't the one who cleanses from my sin, then I have no hope. There's no second. There's no plan B. It's all resting upon Him. And I'll cling to Him because He is my only hope. All that I have in him to rest in Christ, faith in him. And the love that we have for all the saints, faith and love always go together. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. Um, it's, it's the proof. You remember that dramatic scene in Matthew 25 where Jesus says is said to come before the nations to judge them and to separate the sheep from the goats. The basis upon which the separation is made 
is a very interesting one. We would expect it to be made on the basis of faith. We would expect Jesus to say, the sheep go over here because you have believed in me, the goats go over here because you didn't. But that's not the basis of the judgment, at least as it is laid out to us. You know the basis of the judgment. Jesus says to them, Come, all you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when would he see you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Jesus said the way that our faith is, is known is how we love, not just the world in general so much, but how we love one another, these brothers of Jesus, these others who believe in him. And so you see, faith and love for all the saints cannot be separated. There can be no real faith without a love for all the saints. There can't be a love for all the saints without real faith. Jesus makes that explicit. Or John makes that explicit. The Apostle John, as he writes in his first epistles, he writes this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart to him. How does God's love abide him, little children? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and and treasure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask from him and we receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And we know that he abides in us by the spirit he has given to us. He writes this too. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The two go together, you see. And so on that day when sheep and goats are being separated one from the other, it's still the same. Faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus, always reveals itself in love for others. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. But you see, hope in what is laid up fuels both our faith and love. You know that expression. When a person can be so heavenly minded he's no earthly good, that's wrong. The hope of what is laid up in heaven makes us earthly good. Because you see, faith can cost. Jesus said that we can be persecuted for our faith. Jesus said the world hated me, they're going to hate you. What sustains in the midst of that our faith? It's knowing something. 
It's just being sustained by the Spirit of God who is in us. But, but it's knowing that there's something that is to come that's real, that's there. Even as Jesus put it in Matthew in chapter 5, again, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In the midst of persecuting. I remember one time my little Gracie, my little, when she was little, she's still little, she's 22, but she's little. Um, when she was about five or six, must have been six, she was in the first or second grade, came home and said, Daddy, there's this boy who keeps teasing me about being a Christian. And I said, Honey, that's all right, because great is your reward in heaven. And her face lit up. She said, Really? I said, yeah. She said, does mom know this? I said, she went, I said yeah, mom knows this. And she said, wow. And the little child in her was able to go back to school because she clung to something. And that was a great lesson to me. Yeah, there is hope in heaven. It's laid up there, all in Christ. Thus, even if it costs now, as the Apostle says, present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's revealed. You see, that's how hope fuels faith and love. It enables us to sacrifice because we know they're really giving up nothing. Because great is this reward in heaven. John Piper speaks to this longer quote than I have time for, but bear with me. He says, is it true that when Christians set their hearts earnestly and intensely on the future prospect of sharing the glory of God and seeing the risen Lord and being freed from sin and sickness and living in joy for all eternity, when Christians set their hearts with deep longings and strong confidence on these things, do they become so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use? Do they become self-centered and fall prey to escapism? He says, no, here's what the Bible teaches. It teaches and shows that a strong confidence in the promises of God and a passionate preference for the joy of heaven over the joy of the world frees a person from worldly self-centeredness and paralyzing regret and self-pity, from fear and greed and bitterness and despair and laziness and impatience and envy. In the place of all these sins, hope bears the fruit of love. The problem with the church today is not that there are too many people who are passionately in love with heaven. Name three, he says. (laughs) The problem is not that professing Christians are retreating from the world, spending half their days reading the Bible, and the other half singing about the pleasures in God in the whole, uh, uh, pleasures in God, all the while indifferent to the needs of the world. The problem is that professing Christians are spending ten minutes reading scripture, then half their day making money, and the other half enjoying and repairing what they spent it on. It is not heavenly-mindedness that hinders love. It's worldly-mindedness that hinders love. Even when it is disguised by a religious routine on the weekend, where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and sojourner on the earth? Where is the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds of the world look like bubbles, 
and the entertainment of the world is empty. And the moral causes of the world are so small, are too small because they have no view to eternity. Where is this person? He's not in bondage to TV watching or eating or sleeping or drinking or partying or fishing or sailing. He's a free man in a foreign land. And his one question is this. How can I maximize my enjoyment of God for all eternity while I'm in exile on this earth? And the answer is always the same. By doing the labors of love. Only one thing satisfies the heart whose treasure is in heaven. Doing the works of heaven. And heaven is a world of love. It is not the cords of heaven that bind the the hands of love. It's the love of money and leisure and comfort and praise. These are the cords that bind the hands of love. And the power to sever these cords is in Christian hope. Paul will tell us, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so you see, when we do that, what happens is a transformation. The things of heaven get sweet, so sweet, there's a sense in which we must have them now. And thus we begin to love as we would love in heaven. Thus we begin to be merciful, to be gracious, the very attributes of heaven on earth. That hope fuels faith in Christ. But my original question was why is it that Paul gives thanks to God for their faith and love? The answer is that we give thanks to givers of gifts. If you receive a gift, you give thanks to the giver. You don't give thanks to the person who didn't give it to you. You give thanks to the giver. And since it's a gift, you give thanks because you didn't earn it. It's something that was given and given freely. And there's a sense in which Paul knows as we know that this faith and love, this hope, was a gift of God as he says the truth, the grace of God. Grace, gift. And that grace then means to be thankful to God. He doesn't say thank you for how you love them. Thank you for, 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 for the faith that you have. He could have. There's a sense in which Paul was blessed, no doubt, by them. But yet, he knew that all came from God. So he had to give it to God. Though it's mysterious to us. We all have to ask the question. Why do I believe? We look around and there are other people who don't believe. People are as nice as we are. People that are, have heard the same things that we've heard. And yet they don't believe and we do. And, and, and the question then resounds to us. Why is it that I believe and they don't? What has come? Ezekiel said that it was a work of God. He took out your heart of flesh and put in a took out your heart of stone and put, on an, uh, put it in a heart of flesh. Jeremiah says that the new covenant has come to you and God has written upon your hearts his law and forgiven your sins. Jesus put it like this. He said, you've been born again. We all know that that comes outside of ourself. None of us conceived ourselves physically. It was done without our thought, without our knowledge. To be born again by the Spirit of God means that God has done something. We read those mysteriously amazing words that before the foundations of the world God chose us to be in Christ and we just shiver 
and give thanks. Paul's going to write on a number of occasions to this church, give thanks. He's going to keep telling them to do what he has done, give thanks. And the reason I think is this, is because when you give thanks, you realize that what you have was indeed a gift. It did not come from yourself. And if it is a gift, and it is a gift from God to whom you give thanks, then why trust anything else? Why dilute it with anything else? Continue to live by faith in Christ alone. According to this word of truth in the scripture alone. Because it comes from God by grace alone. Dare I say again. That our thankfulness comes not by comparing what we have with what we want. We compared what we have with what we wanted. Most of us still should be pretty happy. But that isn't where real thankfulness comes from. It's not, it doesn't sustain gratefulness. Nor does comparing what we have with what we need. Again, if we made that comparison, most all of us would be thankful, should be. True thankfulness comes by comparing what we have with what we deserve to have. And Paul's saying, look at it. Look at this message of truth, this gospel of victory over sin and death that Epaphras has brought you. It's working everywhere, all over the world. Don't run after anything else. Don't dilute it with anything else. Concentrate, center your life around Christ. He's the one who is preeminent. He's the one who is your life. Give thanks. Let's pray, Father. Thank you. Thank you for faith that we have in Christ. Thank you for the love that you have given to us, that you have worked in us for one another, for all the saints. Thank you for the hope that we have that enables us to look to glory and say, yes, it is secure. Yes, it is true. Yes, I will know it, receive it. That enables us to long for the things above and trust and love. Father, thank you for that. May we never get over the thrill of it, of the mystery of it, of having been sought out, having been chosen by you before the foundations of the world. Though we don't understand every nook and cranny of all that that means, this we know to be true, that we belong to you. And it is of your doing. And we're safe and secure in you. Father, I pray that especially for those in our congregation who are suffering in these days that you be with them. I pray for... Darren and Shannon White, and of course Ed and Peggy, as they continue to grieve uh, and now live with the loss of little Caden. Thank you for your wonderful grace in these days to all of us, most especially to them. And I pray you continue for Terry Godstein and her family as she grieves the loss of her mom, for Larry Michaels as he grieves the loss of his dad. For Stephanie Hanna, she grieves the loss of her grandma. Father, we pray for these and probably others of whom we don't know. 
their loss. But Father, we pray that the hope laid up in heaven will fuel faith and love. Father, we pray for Jane Nutell that you'd bless her in this new medication. And even though she and Albert are away from us in these days quite a bit, we pray that you'd be with her and help her. For Gary and Kathy Rockman's granddaughter, Rebecca, Father, as she battles Lyme's disease, we pray for her that you would bring healing to her body, most especially a strong faith in her very life. Father, for us as a church, we pray that this gospel of truth will be known not only among us, but through us to our community and the whole world. And that we would see the fruit of it, hope, faith, love in the lives of people. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.